0: Hello, and welcome to episode 108 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing well, Seth. Looking forward to this. Yep, this is a good one. Aside from Bill and I, we have another special guest for this week's episode. I've known this dude for some 14 years now, which is a long time, and I've worked with him on and off for a great many of those 14 years in one way or another. I have tremendous work for his, or tremendous respect for his work, and I'm excited to have him on our show. I'd like to welcome my friend, the fantastic historian, John Parshall. John, what's going on? Delighted to be here. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Now, if you've been paying attention as we've progressed through the early portion of the Pacific War in our episodes, uh, you know what time we are nearing. It's the so-called, so-called, turning point of the Pacific War, and we can argue that moniker if we so choose. Oh yes,
1: <laughs> Guadalcanal.
0: <laughs> We're doing Guadalcanal. <laughs> yeah. well, for sure, for <laughs> sure. But regardless, it, it's time for Midway. Uh, but instead of jumping right into the exciting stories of SPDs screaming down on Kiwibu uh, we got to set the stage, and that's what the three of us are going to do here today. We're going to Set the stage. So hold your horses. The SPDs will come, I promise. But right now, uh, the three of us are going to tell you what happened before the SPDs came screaming down on Qutai. Um, the best way to start, I guess, is let, let's give a sit rep of uh, of the situation in the Pacific, late May 1942. What's what's the Pacific war looking like right now, guys? What what is what what are we looking like?
1: I think even beyond just the Pacific, the world is a dumpster fire at this point, if you're on the Allied side. Um, When I talk about this time of year, I typically try to create a little time capsule. It's like, you know, the Russians have just gotten clobbered at Kerch and Kharkov. The British are on the receiving end shortly of an attack from Rommel and are on their back heels. Uh, The U.S. East Coast is being turned into a shooting gallery by German U-boats. Uh, And then, yeah, fast forward to what's happened in the Pacific. um, It's been disastrous. Malaya, Burma, uh, Sumatra, Java, all gone. The Philippines have just collapsed, and it's the largest surrender of American troops in U.S. history. Over 75,000 Phil-American troops uh, from Bataan alone. Uh, the British have lost 138,000 in Malaya and Singapore, including 120,000 into Japanese uh, internment camps. I mean, it is it is a disaster right at the moment. Um, there's actually at the beginning of April, uh, Kita Butai has just launched this massive raid into the Indian Ocean that sinks the Hermes and a couple of cruisers, and you know, unceremoniously shoves. Uh, the White Ensign of the Royal Navy, which has ruled the world's oceans for centuries. Uh, they have now been forced to rebase all the way back to Mombasa in Kenya. I mean, it's just been ignominious failure for the British for the past five months.
0: And the U.S. wasn't faring too much, What uh, wasn't faring too better on, on our side either. I mean, we had no. launched uh, the carrier raids in February and, and March, which you know, we had an episode where we talked about that and it was, you know, it was more uh, propaganda. It was more morale building than anything else. I mean, it really didn't accomplish a whole hell of a lot, but, th- but there weren't any of those, you know, cataclysmic, those, those, those tide turning battles that, uh, that we're going to see here in the very near future. Um The one thing that, that we did do, uh, we being the United States, and, and this is something that factors into John, as you will know, factors into what, uh, happens here in the next couple of weeks at the Battle of Midway. Of course, is the Doolittle Raid. Yes, um, the Doolittle Raid. Of course, is launched on April eighteenth, nineteen forty-two. It 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 has two carriers involved. It's got the Enterprise and the Hornet. Um, but what what is the reasoning behind the Doolittle Raid? What is what? Why do why the hell do we even do it in the first place? Yet
1: another uh, propaganda stunt, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, that. But but certainly one that is seen as vital to American morale by, by FDR, we have to be able to demonstrate that we have some ability to strike back against the Japanese after this terrible run of the last four or five months in the war. So by using medium bombers from aircraft carriers, uh, we can hit the Japanese hopefully beyond uh, their ability to hit back at us and send a very visible message that you know this thing ain't over yet.
0: Right, and I, I mean, to this—the the concept was was crafted by a submariner. I just needed to make a point.
1: <laughs> Fair <laughs> deal. Yeah.
0: Any any time we can add a submariner to the story, we add a submariner okay, well, to the story. Absolutely, keep doing that.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
0: but only if it's true. All right, okay. But, but we, you know, we we launched the doodle Array. And, and I mean, you you said it exactly. It's nothing but a propaganda uh, strike. Now, and it does it does achieve what it's designed to do, which is you know particularly raise American morale. Yeah, uh, you know, we hit back at the Japanese. Not only we hit do we hit back at the Japanese. We hit back at Tokyo for crying out loud, yeah. you know? I mean, it we 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 go for the go for the throat. And, you know, militarily it really doesn't do anything to right. the targets on the ground. I mean, you know, it starts some fires, it does kill some people, which is obviously, you know, it's what happens on most bombing raids, but it doesn't uh Damages the light
1: carrier Ryuho on, yeah. on the ways. Uh, no, but from, from a Japanese morale standpoint, uh, the effect was cataclysmic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Yamamoto was absolutely mortified that, you know, the emperor might have been in personal danger as a result of of, you know, American bombers over Tokyo. He reportedly took to his cabin for a day and would not come out. So... Um, this is a pretty profound shock to the Japanese. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and they knew, I mean, you know, it was no secret. They knew where the B-25s came from, didn't they?
1: Oh, absolutely. The yeah. yeah. I mean, they our, our carriers had run into a picket line of Japanese, sure. uh, you know, fishing boats, essentially, that, you know, had been armed with radios. And, and we sank a couple of them, but not before they got the word out. So the Japanese knew what had happened. But what they didn't know... Um, initially at least, was that we had put medium bombers on one of those carriers. Uh, and so we didn't have to get as close to Japan as they thought that we would have to get in order to use aircraft.
0: Yeah. And uh, and, and you, you pointed out that we sunk two of their fishing boat or their picket boats, fishing boats, yeah. whatever. And I just have to say that it is easily the greatest display of Poor marksmanship in United States Navy history. <laughs> How many like, rounds did it take? Like five, 600 rounds to sink these dang fishing boats. It was ridiculous. And it mm-hmm. may have been more than that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking, so, you know, automatic weapons fire. Yeah, let's <laughs> Show that yeah we're talking the, Chinese any- use picket
2: boats, fishing boats to be picket boats today. So it's a yeah. relevant lesson.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah good point. <laughs> And and then in the immediate aftermath, a lot of people don't remember this too, but um, the Japanese sent a number of their fleet units, including some of the carriers that were then coming back from the Indian Ocean raid. They sent them, you know, tear-assing across the Pacific, trying to run down these American carriers. And in the process of doing that, they're generating a lot of radio traffic, which our um, intel stations at, at Hypo in, in Hawaii and other locations were picking up on. So that generated a lot of radio traffic for us to analyze that came in useful later on.
0: And that's, that's something that we talked about in an earlier episode. We had uh, Admiral Cox on, uh, on an episode about station HIPO, and And we were talking about that the it wasn't necessarily breaking the code right. per se yeah. as it was traffic analysis that led to the big breakthroughs in this time period, April, May, June 42.
1: I think that's right. I think a lot of people have this sort of erroneous vision of, you know, oh, we, we, we were, were reading, reading our mail. Oh, we're reading everything perfectly. It's like, no, yeah. there were more gaps than there were actual words in there. But you can generate some insight just from that. And again, as you say, from traffic analysis, you can see a lot of things
0: as well. Yeah, they were reading, I think it was less than 10%, you know, yeah. of, of actual verbiage, you know. Yeah. But um, but anyway, we, we talked about the do little raid very, very briefly and that's and that's fine. But what does the do little raid do, John, to the Japanese plans at this stage?
1: Sure. Um, there's there's often this mistaken notion that the Doolittle raid led to the operation at Midway, and that is completely untrue. In actuality, the the sort of bureaucratic battle that had to be waged by Yamamoto versus uh, naval mm-hmm. GI up in Tokyo oh. that had already happened. Mm-hmm. So April second through fifth, you know, there was this big proxy battle in Tokyo. And eventually, Yamamoto played his trump card, which is, I'm going to resign unless I get my way. Um, and GHQ has had caved, uh, predictably. So Yamamoto has already won that battle. Um, and the, the effect of that is, though, that then there's this sort of political quid pro quo where Naval GHQ is like, okay, well, you get to do your midway operation, but we want you to do... Uh, the operation against Port Moresby, which leads to Coral Sea, that has to happen first. So as soon as that goes down and they move up the time schedule for Coral Sea, then they start issuing a whole bunch of orders to some of these subordinate units, and that too generates a lot of message traffic. Mm -hmm. The other thing, though, that happens then with due little raid happening about two weeks after that, the Army up to this point is like, we want nothing to do, With this Midway operation. You know, you're going to go capture this stupid little atoll out in the middle of the Pacific. Have fun, boys, but we're not giving you any troops to do that. As soon as Doolittle goes down, though, all of a sudden the army does a complete about face and they're like, huh, yeah, it turns out that, you know, American aircraft carriers are actually kind of important. And so here is a regiment of ground troops uh, who are now going to. Participate in the battle. And not only that, but we are now slating two army divisions for further amphibious training. Because once we capture Midway, the follow on operations are going to be that we're going to start working our way down the Hawaiian island chain and eventually we're going to invade Oahu. Because if we can capture Oahu and its 400,000 American citizens, that becomes a tremendously valuable card for any sort of a bargaining table effort that that would happen later on in the war to end this thing.
2: So all of the concern about an invasion of Hawaii was probably not founded until Doolittle, yeah. and then it was righteous. And yeah. these folks and Midway was what a thousand miles from Hawaii, so it wasn't
1: about that 1,100. Far. 1100, yeah, eleven yeah. hundred nautical miles. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know the the site of the Midway battle is is fairly cleverly um, conceived of by Yamamoto. He wants he wants a place that is close enough to Pearl Harbor that it will elicit a reaction by the Americans, but he wants it to be far enough away that the organic air power on Oahu, which is pretty beefy at this point, cannot get directly involved in that battle itself. So that's that's one of the reasons he picks Midway. That said um midway is not a terribly useful advanced anchorage for the japanese i mean the place is the size of a postage stamp you know you can put maybe 100 airplanes on it with revetments kind of um it doesn't have much of a harbor so it can't really be used as a staging area and of course it's it's outside of the air envelope of places like wake and guam so the japanese can't cover it with their own land-based air assets and it's horribly vulnerable to submarines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if the Japanese can capture this place, how are they going to keep it in supply? And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that feeds into Nimitz's battle plan as well. He knows that even if he loses Midway, he really doesn't rate Japan's chances. Of uh, holding high on to 100. it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, well,
2: you referred to it kind of as the fourth aircraft carrier in the battle that we were going to talk about in the next episode, okay. unsinkable as it is. So right. that, in that regard, it had the wrong kind of airplanes maybe based yeah. there, but um, but re, but it did kind of tend to even the odds in what was going to come.
0: The um, odds, yeah.
2: You talked about the fact that Yamamoto had already won the argument. You yeah, know, after the, by the time of the Doolittle raid, which is a common misperception, it almost parallels the common other common misperception that Station AF hmm. that, they, that had to be conv- that Nimitz had to be convinced that Station AF was Midway. And in fact, he was already convinced at this point, right?
1: Yeah, Nimitz, by this point, if we're, we're talking mid-May at this point, and mm-hmm. Hypo doesn't start getting wind of what's going on until May 14th. Those That's the initial set of messages that kind of pique people's interest at Hypo, that hmm, something looks like it's brewing and it's aimed at the Central Pacific. Two days later, on the 16th, Nimitz, broadly speaking, is on board because by this time he trusts Leighton. And he Mm -hmm. and Leighton trusts Hypo. He also Nimitz sends another officer down to Hypo to talk to Rochefort and the boys and, you know, and really tries to poke holes in their reasoning. And he comes away from that meeting and he's like, now then these guys know what they're what they're talking about. But there's an ongoing debate at this point between Hypo and their bosses in Washington, D.C., which is Op 20G, Mm -hmm. uh, the outfit that's run by the Redmond brothers. And D.C. does not necessarily believe that A.F. stands for Midway. They are the ones that have to be convinced. Right. And so that is the reason for this this famous, um, you know, sleight of hand where we broadcast in plane from Midway that we're short of water. And then lo and behold, in, in the Japanese decrypts uh, the very next day. You know, there's a decrypt that says AF is short of water. Bring along a water
0: tanker. And even then, after that, that barely convinced Admiral King barely let Nimitz do what he wanted to do. Right.
1: (laughs) And and there continues to be some real controversy. This this is one of the things I talked about in this this most recent Naval War College article that I just just got Mm -hmm. published in the last month or so. If you look in the gray book which is the running intelligence summary that was kept, uh, throughout pack the fleet. war. Yeah. Pack fleet, you know, kept by captain Steele. You can see all the message traffic that's going back and forth between Cominch and, and, uh, you know, sync pack Nimitz and King, um, regarding what their Intel estimates are and consistently, D.C. is convinced that the Japanese are going to be bringing five aircraft carriers to the party. In other words, Zuikaku plus carrier divisions one and two.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Leighton and the, the boys and Hypo are like, no, it's only going to be four aircraft carriers. And that debate ping pongs back and forth all the way up to the, the very eve of the battle.
2: It is, it, and Nimitz believed Layton and Hypo. Um, if he agreed with King, do you think he would have committed um to engage at Midway?
1: Yeah, it's it's clear. And this this is actually something that that John Lundstrom pointed out to me way back in two thousand six, two thousand seven, that I I really didn't grok completely, but Nimes was aggressive enough that even if Yorktown couldn't be patched up in time for this battle. He was going to do willing it willing to go up there with just two carriers, even mm. though there was a possibility that the Japanese were bringing five. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Think about that's, that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's All serious. Different. Yeah. That's, that's
0: serious gambler's risk right there.
1: Yeah. Well, and we can get into the underlying reasoning that Nimitz goes through to, to accept those odds, but that gives you a sense for just how aggressive a commander Nimitz actually was and, and this is sort of intriguing because for the first part of the war, up until about April, King has got some real worries, concerns.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: He doesn't think Nimitz may be up to the task. He doesn't think that Nimitz is aggressive enough.
2: He's a fixer. Yeah. That's what he referred to him as a fixer, which was not yeah. a compliment.
1: Not a compliment. Um, you know, it really took that that meeting on April 24th back in San Francisco. You know, for Nimitz to kind of get his way uh, as to whether or not he could actually fight the Battle of Coral Sea or not, mm-hmm. and I think that gave King, okay, this guy actually wants to come to grips and and yeah. come to blows with the Japanese. That was he a step in the right direction, but he still needs to be you know convinced that that Nimitz really is on the mark in terms of the level of aggression that King wants to see.
2: And Nimitz, well, Nimitz's staff wasn't. Uh, optimistic wasn't encouraging in this regard is that
1: he really had to override them didn't he um no actually i i think by and large yes he was still going through some some staff perturbations at this point Mm -hmm. because of course he's inherited kimmel's staff from the the pearl harbor attack Mm -hmm. and i think at this point you know one of nimitz's real strengths is being able to figure out you know what's the right billet to put this guy yep. into? And so yep. he's doing some rearranging of the deck chairs. And his some experience
2: the chairs, at the Bureau of Navigation was very valuable. Yeah, in
1: right. He's a very good people um, guy. judge of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, and one of the things that makes Nimitz such an admirable human being, I think, is his willingness to give people second chances, which is created yeah. because someone gave him a second chance early After in his grounded
2: career. decatur
1: yep right when he puts his own ship up on a sandbar you know mm-hmm. he could have been done at that point and so yeah as we say you know he's he's moving some of the deck chairs around and some of the deck chairs frankly are gonna go away mm-hmm. but right you know, so. by and large he feels that he's got a pretty good staff he yes he has to drag some of them along a little bit with regards uh to the Midway battle plan, but by and large, you know he gets
2: including stronger. his deputy. Pi was still his deputy.
1: Yeah, Pi was not super keen on this whole thing, but Pi yeah. was,
0: yeah, Pi was, was way way a way bit timid. Shall we? Pie say? Pi
1: is one of the deck chairs that's going to get moved off the deck. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let let's uh, let let's shift gears. We're talking about planning. What was the Japanese plan? As best you can, right. <laughs> in a short amount of time.
1: Yeah, what was right. the
0: Japanese plan for the attack? What was Yamamoto's plan? What and why the hell was it so damn complex?
1: Well, you know, complex planning is a is a, a characteristic that you see in Japanese battle planning throughout the war. You see it mm-hmm. again at Leyte. You, you see it all over the Water canal. Yep, for sure. Mm-hmm. Dispersed formations, um, you know, in many cases not mutually supporting. In this case, what's going on is that... Yamamoto believes that the Americans are going to have to be coaxed out to battle. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to tip them off, you know, just how many assets I'm bringing to this party. So I want to keep a lot of these formations kind of out of scouting distance until the time comes. I'm going to use my invasion force and the covering force for that invasion force, which contains a couple of fast battleships. That's going to be the bait. You know, I'm going to trail their coats, Somewhere, you know, to the southwest of Midway and that's going to get the Americans to come out to play. We're going to hit Midway with our carrier force. We're going to put it out of business. We're going to invade it after about two days and quickly turn it into a forward air base. We're going to put a couple dozen zeros on it. During this time, the Americans will have sallied forth and they're going to come to the party, not only with their carriers, but also with their remaining slow battleships from Pearl as well. Mm -hmm. We're going to bring, the Japanese will bring down their carrier forces and their battleship forces from the Aleutians. So they'll have, you know, like three different battleship forces, two different carrier forces. All of them are geel around Midway somewhere. The Japanese carriers are going to do in their opposite numbers. And then the climax of this thing is going to be a daytime naval gunnery battle.
2: The between, decisive battle.
1: Yeah. Kantai That mm-hmm. is exactly it. And so the result of this whole thing is going to be the American carriers are all going to be sunk. And the remaining slow battleships that we didn't get rid of at Pearl Harbor likewise are going to be sunk. They're going to lose you know, eight American capital ships in an afternoon. And they, now they've got to come to the table. You know, right. that's that's the reasoning behind all of this.
0: That's that's the plan. That's and the plan. so do you think at this stage, I mean, and then now I'm kind of jumping ahead yeah. and we'll, we'll we'll say this is like, well, we're kind of in the same ballpark. We'll say mid to late May, uh, say, you know, May 15th, May 20th period. Do you think at this point that the Japanese are still they still have a lack of respect for American naval aviation, it, it, considering what was done at Coral Sea? You know, we did. Sink the Shoho. We put Shokaku, as you uh, said one time, turned it into an A-frame. You know, we we put Shokaku out of action. We devastated Zuikaku's air group uh, through various different ways. Do you think that they have a lack of respect for American uh, naval aviators and the ability of our carriers and carrier groups to do damage and actually, you know, make a difference?
1: I think broadly speaking, yes. I think some of that is also based on their own discounting of carrier division five, Shokaku and Zuikaku, which were the new kids on the block and Mm -hmm. did not have air groups that were rated as being as good as carrier divisions one and two. And so they they referred to them as the lesser sons of concubines um, (laughs) uh, in in one sort of a side. So... The fact that that damage had been done to those two carriers, you know, I think a lot of the guys that were in carrier divisions one and two are like, well,
2: if those were real carriers, that would
1: yeah, have been down there, you yeah. know, it been a different, a different outcome. Um. I think at an institutional level, broadly speaking, the Japanese Navy felt that they were better than we were. And, you know, the objective evidence, you look at battles like Java Sea, holy cow, you know, they just destroyed us. Mm -hmm. The piece that's sort of interesting, though, is if you if you look at what Yamamoto thought at this point in time, you can find some quotes from him and he's like, you know these these young fighter jocks. They think this is all going to be easy. I I'm here to tell you that the second phase of operations is going to be a lot harder. And he has tremendous respect for the latent industrial power of the sure. Americans. And so on Yamamoto's side, there's a real sense of urgency. We need to win this thing this year. If we can't do that, we're in big big trouble. So. Mm-hmm. That's the reason that he is so pushy about making sure that his battle plan gets shoved to the head of the line as near as he can make it. And and that, that battle plan is so ambitious that it it anticipates the utter destruction of all of America's remaining capital ships so that that shock value, he's aiming at our morale, mm-hmm. that shock value will bring us to the bargaining He team.
2: understands the center of gravity of a democracy. And it's the willingness of the public to support what's going on.
1: Bingo. And
2: you understand that because he spends considerable time in the United States. And that was something he actually said, as opposed to, I'm afraid we woke a sleeping giant, which he never
1: said. He never said. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, Great and, line, but never said. Yeah. It. Great line. Great script writer. Um, <laughs> and and just to sort of fast forward ahead to um this is around the July 1942 time frame. So we've won the battle of Midway now, right? 3 weeks after Midway gets won, there's an editorial that comes out in the New York Times that basically calls for FDR to relinquish his role as commander in chief of the armed forces and turn that over to a military man.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There is another editorial around the same time that says that, okay, well, even if we won at Midway, the Japanese are going to be back in an even greater strength the second time around. So we, from 80 years removed, look back at Midway and we're like, decisive battle, game changer. <laughs> and the Americans at the time did not feel that, that way that at all. Yeah. Because and Did again, MacArthur write
2: that article in the New York Times? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? But <laughs> But again, you have to place Midway within this broader context of allied disaster worldwide, that winning one battle doesn't necessarily pretend that your team is is going on to victory. So anyway, wind it back to me. Yamamoto was going after our morale. That's what's happening here.
0: Mm -hmm. And our ability to do anything at all. You know, and and respond to anything that would go on further from there. Now, we talk about uh, our, our ability to respond, and that's a perfect segue into our United States' preparations for the Battle of Midway. Once it's confirmed by HYPO that Midway is the objective of the Japanese, Nimitz throws everything but the kitchen sink at Midway. Yep. To bolster its defenses, he goes onto the island on May 2nd. Now granted, this is before that he knows that Midway is a target confirmed. And he asks uh, Lieutenant Colonel Shannon and Commander Samard, he says, yeah. uh, "You know, what's going on? What do you need? What's happening?" And they basically give him a laundry list about as long as my leg of things that they need. Yeah. And Nimitz says, "Well, if I can get these things for you." Could you hold this place against an amphibious assault? And both of them immediately, without hesitation, say, Yes, sir, we can. Yep. So Nimitz says, All right. <laughs> and he calls their bluff essentially, but you know, he, he's he's no fool. He starts sending everything out there. And if you look at the list of things that he sends out there, it's literally everything he could get his fingers on. Yep. And I mean he sent he's so so before he sends anything, they got the third and the sixth defense battalion on midway, marines, yep. and they got a few airplanes, and that's about it. There's not a whole hell of a lot of PBYs, but the list may, of things, maybe sends, airplanes, right? And maybe right. marine airplanes. Sorry. Yeah. Mm. But the the list of things he sends out there is astonishing. It's it it goes he sends, which I think is pretty cool. He sends C Company of the second Raider Battalion out there,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is you know, I remember uh talking to some guys who were uh, aviators on Midway Island Marines. And they said, you know, they knew something was up really. Raiders showed up. When the Raiders, showed, when up. The Raiders <laughs> showed up, they're like, oh crap. Oh, this man. might not be good. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but to load that gun. Yeah. Yeah. Said, I mean, Leon Williamson, a pilot from VMSB 241, said, When I saw these guys come aboard the island and they were armed to the teeth, I said, mm, we might be in store for a bad couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Right. But they send the raiders. They send sixteen PBY Catalinas out there for scouts. Twenty, and this is kind of sad here. Twenty-seven fighters, uh, and there's—I I don't have the exact breakdown, but it's F4s and F2A uh, Brewster Buffaloes, which are, uh, you know, uh, not you great. know, museum pieces. The,
1: the, the Buffalo gets a bad rap. It really was it? right. And, uh, you know, the Finns used it to pretty good effect up on the eastern front. Mm. Um, if you, Anyway, I, I, we've gotten into debates on this with, in another group that I belong to with a guy who has done a lot of aeronautical engineering. He is just like a lot of what's going on with the Brewster is that people weren't using it right. They didn't. Mm. You know, I don't care what plane you fly. You can fly a Corsair and if you fly it incorrectly against a zero, it will shoot you down. So I'm not gonna
0: say that about sure. the devastator though, I bet.
1: Yeah, well that's that's fair, that's but different. I'm, okay, anyway. Yeah, I so, rest.
0: So aside from the 27 fighters, he sends 37 dive bombers from VMSB 241, as I was saying. Uh it's 19 SPDs, 12 SPD, uh SB2U vindicators, or as the Marines called it, wind Mid- indicators. Mid- <laughs> <laughs> if you look at footage that John Ford's shot there on midway when the wind indicators are taken off, you see a lot of them have this white tape on them Mm -hmm. if you ever notice it's not paint that's surgical tape uh six tbf avengers from vt detached is what they're called uh four b-26 marauders armed with torpedoes from the 38th bomb group and the 22nd bomb group and of course and they
2: ever dropped torpedoes before
0: no no these poor guys. When you think yeah.
1: About it Yeah. You're an army aviator. You get up to this godforsaken sand spec, and they're like, "Here's some torpedoes. We're gonna slap these on your belly, too." You know. Mm-hmm.
2: And you got to go really low and really slow to mm-hmm. deliver them. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: Which is not a great thing to do in a Marauder, which is a pretty yeah. hot, dangerous airplane to begin with. But yeah, they
0: called it the Widowmaker. The maker, other thing
1: yeah. I I point out though, just just on the ground combat alone, there's also a platoon of M3 tanks that they've Tucked away in the underbrush on uh, on Sand Island, I believe. I just don't see any way that the Japanese were going to be able to invade this place successfully. I mean, the no. Marines have got barbed wire down to the waterline. The beaches have thousands of IEDs that they've been cooking up and putting out there. Mm-hmm. They have a plethora of automatic weapons. They've got. Big pieces too, you know. Shore defense five and six and seven inch weapons, interlocking um, fields of fire. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, I and not only that, but the the landing craft that the Japanese are using, the Daihatsu, uh, doesn't have a, a small enough clearance to make it over the top of the reef. Which means that they're going to be dumping these troops on the In reef, water. and it's these they're
2: they're Terawa. It would
1: yeah. Have been. That's literally it. You know, now you get to wade with your, you know, rifle over your head, 150 to 400 yards, in some cases, from the reef to the beach. Have fun with that. And, and by the way, you're outnumbered by the Marines on this island.
0: Yeah, there's, there's no way. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, and we, we forgot the B-17s, too, that did. Right. So yeah. They, they took good pictures.
2: I mean. And they're, yeah. they're the ones that won the battle, right?
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure. But while uh, while the defenses on Midway, and I'm talking air defenses now, not 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 the gyrenes on the ground, but the air defenses. while on paper they look strong, and we can all comment on this one, in reality, they really weren't that strong. If you really look at in in terms of effectiveness, uh, combat experience, which for these guys was effectively nil, uh, and then again, I'm talking about the aviators on the island itself, the Marines yeah. and the Army Air Forces uh, crews and, and the Navy personnel, too. Uh, I mean, you got a brand new airplane in the Avenger, which had literally never been flown in combat before, ever, until June 4th, um, arm, or, uh, flown by people who had never heard a shot fired in anger. You got B 17s that had proven already that they could not hit the broadside of a barn from inside the barn
1: although that's still under debate I'm um, if you again if you go into the gray book and actually look at some of the message traffic that's coming back from uh, macarthur uh-huh. uh, it was generated by coral c this is one of the things i looked at for this article yeah i think there was starting to be some raised eyebrows uh within uh sync pack hq as to whether or not the b-17 was effective in this role but it really was not decisively known at this point that it was not in it
2: uh, okay so enough, believed certainly. it might have been effective but in fact right. it wasn't <clears throat> Midway did nothing to
1: disprove that notion yeah well right. except for the PR yeah, efforts of, of the oh, army for sure, right? yeah. for sure. no I, I think you're right Seth that yeah the defensively you look at these pilots and they in many cases did not have a great airframe and I don't believe that they were flight uh fighting with the proper tactics Um, offensively, yeah, you've got this polyglot pickup force, you know, B-26s that couldn't probably tell one end of a torpedo from the other. Um, The TBF is going to go on to be a great plane, but yeah, this is its combat debut, and they don't know what they're up against in terms of the Japanese combat air patrol. I remember having a conversation with Harry Ferrier, who was one of the two surviving crewmen from that flight, and he was was a 17-year-old kid at that point, and he was like, we had a great plane. We thought we were going to do great things in this battle. And when he came back from that mission, I mean, he was a changed human. So, yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, yeah.
0: Harry, Harry was uh, yeah, he was a young kid. I can't remember the name of the um, radio operator who Candy was thing. killed. Yeah. But but Bert Ernest was his pilot. And I mean, it's if you hard. look at pictures of that airplane shot to pieces, it looks like Swiss cheese. Just mm-hmm.
1: blow the pieces. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, we can get into changing. that next next episode. But oh, for sure,
2: yeah. absolutely. But, but we but, can't. N- we got to talk about leadership. We 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 going to go back on something else. Well, Make I was leadership. just going to say,
0: yeah, I was going to say that the, the the aces up Nimitz' sleeve are the carriers. Of course, yeah. Yeah. it's it's Enterprise Hornet in Yorktown.
1: Yeah, and and
0: and, uh, and Yorktown, although patched together,
2: right. Right. It wasn't really. And, and I got to tell you, I spent a lot of time in Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard, and they're still proud that they got that aircraft carrier out as quickly as they did. But all they really did was patch up the hole so it wouldn't sink. Yeah. The internal systems weren't repaired at all.
1: Yeah. yeah, And that was the best they could do. And, that's, the
2: know, be- that's That's not nothing. Right? That's wonderful. No, it's
1: not nothing at all. Yeah, And, and you have to understand that during this whole time, okay, so Nimitz gets the word on the 14th that he's going to have a battle on his hands. By mm-hmm. the 16th, he's getting busy on cooking up this battle plan. He does not know if Yorktown is going to be repairable. In fact, he does not know that until May 27th, in the yard. Yeah. you know, when she comes back in. And they don't actually put her into the dry dock until the following morning on the 28th. So the first indication that he gets is that Yorktown docks um Fletcher comes down the brow of the ship you know thinks he's going to go to the O club and get a well-deserved drink and is met by Nimitz's staff officer he's just like get in the car I got to take you to the old man's you know headquarters we got stuff we got to talk about and in the one-on-one conversation between Fletcher and Nimitz um, Fletcher gives him enough indications like, yeah, I think we can probably patch this thing up, that when Spruant sticks his head in later in that conversation, Nimitz is able to say, It looks like your time will be coming along. Mm-hmm. But he's created his battle plan in such a way that if it comes out that I only have two carriers, that's still what we're gonna go up to midway with. But that has that realization has important effects on. The battle plan itself and the role of point luck which we can we can talk about now or later whatever you want well
0: yeah let's mm-hmm. let's uh mm-hmm. let's hit on it real quick the the role of point luck you know that's the famous rendezvous aptly yeah, named as they say in the movie blah blah blah
1: rendezvous off of midway and so point luck is off to the northeast of midway mm-hmm. and that's where the american carriers are going to be located to begin the battle and one thing that has not been properly understood I don't think in the previous 80 years regarding this battle is its distance placement and how it affected that battle plan. If you look at where point luck is located in, in relation to where the Japanese were anticipated to show up, it's 360 nautical miles away. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a long way. Mm-hmm. It was well outside the strike range of your, Um, Your torpedo planes was about 175 miles. The dive bombers could reach out to 225. But the bottom line is that if you're going to get your carriers within strike distance, you're going to have to steam about 180 nautical miles to make a launch point. So think about that. If we get good intelligence from, say, our submarines that, hey, things are going great, come on down. The earliest that those carriers could have arrived would have been mid-afternoon, which would have meant maybe one strike tops. Mm -hmm. And if it gets too late, you're looking at a nighttime recovery. There's no way that Fletcher is going to want to do something like that. Mm -hmm. So the original placement of point luck, in essence, creates what is going to be a multi-day battle wherein day one is devoted to the attritional attacks from the Midway aircraft and the submarines trying to whittle the Japanese down to size. And then, and only then, if they have been successful, will the carrier commanders, and probably Nimitz, make a go-no-go decision as to whether or not to commit the American carriers and bring them into position to Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that disemplacement likewise gives those carrier commanders if things are not going
0: well yeah they can bug
1: out you're outside japanese scouting range they won't even know you're there get out leave the defense of midway to the marines that's what they're there for
2: and that go no go decision would occur before York, yorktown showed up once he knew yorktown could be repaired right
1: and that and so that's what ends up happening um just to fast forward again we've still got this ongoing debate between Hypo and OP-20G. Is Zuikaku coming to the party or not? You know, and that goes on until May 31st. Yorktown is now sallied forth at this point. Mm -hmm. Hypo finally realizes and is able to categorically prove, no, some of Zuikaku's aviators have been attached to the carriers that are going up to the Aleutians. So there's no way that Zuikaku is coming to the party. Mm -hmm. June 2nd, Yorktown shows up at Point Luck. And that very afternoon, Nimitz issues a new order to, it's not even an order. He sends a radio message to Fletcher, wherein it is suggested Mm -hmm. that a position further to the west would be more advantageous um, for the carriers. What's going on is Nimitz is like, okay, I know Zuikaku's not showing up. It's going to be four Japanese carriers for sure. I now have three carriers on station. Mm I'm willing to now dial the risco meter up a few notches. So he suggests to Fletcher that Fletcher move to the west, and Fletcher, being nobody's fool, understands that suggestions from (laughs) four-star admirals carry a fair amount of weight, and that very night he moves his force 175 nautical miles to the west. That puts them in the position that they are going to be in during the historical battle, which is much closer to where the Japanese are anticipated to show up and that, in turn, compresses this battle down into a single day affair.
0: Yeah, really, just eight hours. So of course, really mm, not even
2: if we can dial it back, um, you know, this uh, to to leadership issue again. Mm. The the um, Hornet and Enterprise are, of course, part of Halsey's command. Halsey has shingles, yeah. so he can't show up. He ends up going to Norfolk, I think, for treatment, and and he recommends that Spruance be placed in charge. Uh, that element yeah uh, but spruance isn't in overall command it's fletcher mm-hmm. new york town who's going to be late to the party yep. I mean, how was this kind of calculated in, in nimitz's mind
1: you know i i think from king's perspective he has some real doubts about fletcher but nimitz again is the kind of guy who gives people the benefit, you know, benefit of the doubt. Of doubt. And, He's not happy with the way things went down at Coral Sea. I mean, he's very clear in the gray book that losing Lexington for Shoho, you know, that is not a rate of exchange that we want to see going forward. Uh, And he lets calculated risk. Yeah, calculated risk, which is, you know, this famous principle that he issues in the letter of instruction that he gives to both Fletcher and Spruance. He's again basically saying, "Do not risk your carriers unless you think you can do disproportionate damage to the enemy." Mm-hmm. And and point luck again plays into that whole thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, we want to have a very good assessment of the odds before we actually before we close. Carriers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But but there's one thing. You know, we at 80 years removed sort of look at this battle and say, you know, three carriers versus four or maybe three carriers versus five. You know, we're outnumbered. But you need to factor in what American dive bomber doctrine says about these things. The math goes that we assume that one bomber in six is going to get a hit on an enemy target. And maybe if if we get, if we get, well, historically, that's roughly what we got during the battle. The The doctor was pretty close. close. And not only that, but we assume that if you get three bomb hits on an enemy carrier, that's going to knock it out of action. So if you do the math, one squadron of 18 aircraft should be sufficient to knock out an enemy flight deck. Each of our carriers carries two of those squadrons. Even if I take only two carriers up there, that's theoretically four enemy carriers I can knock out with my dive bombers in a single attack, and that doesn't even count the torpedo planes,
2: which would then sink them.
1: Right. Now, obviously, there's a lot of ifs that come Mm -hmm. into that. You know, can you find the enemy first? You know, is the weather good? Can I get through the Japanese combat air patrol? You know, yada 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 yada. But theoretically, according our to our doctrine. We should be able to get in a first blow that knocks out four of their flight decks. And then it's, you know, two carriers to one or three to one or whatever.
2: So we talk, we'll talk be- about how we execute <clears throat> and whether we did what the doctrine said we should do in the next episode. Hmm. But but again, Bruin's not an aviator. Does he understand all of this going in? No. Yeah, Um,
1: it's very clear that he does not. And one of the things that's laudable about Spruance is that he recognizes his own shortcomings. And during the the transit up there, he is picking the brains of every air officer he can get his hands on and Mm -hmm. power cramming, you know, as much of this stuff as he can. And you'll note that during the battle as well, he is very deferential to the aviators in terms of understanding their craft better than he does. Yeah, but he, you know, Spruance is a very smart cookie, and and he he certainly has wargamed a lot of this stuff out pre-war. It's not like he was an ignoramus, um, but he was taking pains to to get up to speed on the the latest greatest and the war lessons uh, as rapidly
0: as he could. And, and the war lessons, uh, and, and and this falls directly onto what I want to talk about briefly, is you know I said the aces up Nimitz' sleeves are the carriers, you know, and that's obvious. That's what he was hinging his hopes on. I, in my opinion, was were, were yeah. the aircraft carriers, our aircraft carriers. The three air group commanders, the Enterprise, Hornet, and Yorktown, are three very different personalities. And we don't need to get into bio- biographical sketches of all three of these guys because that would take too damn long. But on on Hornet, you've got a guy named Stanhope Ring, who is an academy graduate. They all are at this point, but he's an academy graduate. He's old school by the book. He's very, uh, he's buddy, buddy with Pete Mitchell, you know, he's, (laughs) which saves his bacon probably at the end of
2: the day. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And Mm -hmm. we'll get,
0: we'll get to that next episode, but you got Stan Hopering who has zero, zero goose egg combat experience as does his entire air group. Yeah. You know, Hornets air group has the only thing that they've seen and they do, they weren't even aboard during a Doolittle raid is, you know, what people have told them after the carrier raids, and it was a new carrier. So I mean, yeah. brand the First thing, brand first thing it really did was to do a little raid, right? The only thing it did, but but then then you've got you've got Max Leslie in in bombing squadron three uh, aboard Yorktown, and he himself ha- hasn't he's seen the elephant, but he hasn't done a whole hell of a lot of shooting. Yeah. And then you've got, in my opinion, the savior of the event altogether, Clarence Wade Eight. McCluskey. Yeah. yeah. He's the man. And so, he has uh, been, he, he's just, on enterprise. He, right. He's, he's aboard the big E. He just recently got given the job of, of enterprise air group commander before he was uh, with a uh, fighting six. And so he's still, you know, and we'll get into the whole him just learning how to fly a Dauntless and, <laughs> you know, on right. June 4th later. But this is the really enterprise is the only carrier air group with any appreciable combat experience,
1: yeah yeah although yorktown as a vessel as a
0: ship for sure
1: for certainly sure. And, and you know i think i think beyond just the air groups we have to look at things like damage control and just mm-hmm. general savviness i mean one of the other great sort of unsung stories here is uh the fuel officer on board the uh the yorktown oscar meyer right mm-hmm. uh <laughs> who, has, who watched the lexington burn to the water mm-hmm. line during coral sea and he's like i don't want that happening to my ship i wonder what would happen if we pumped our fuel lines full of co2 mm. takes that idea to the damage control officer the dco is like well, i don't know that sounds like a good idea and lo and behold within the space of you know three weeks or so that now becomes standard operating procedure on the yorktown and is going to save her bacon during the actual battle so there's Yorktown as a vessel was a very experienced
0: ship at this point. Oh, no doubt, and 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 that'll, that'll come to light on the morning of June fourth more than any other day. And the fact that Yorktown gets all of her stuff off <laughs> in a reasonable amount of time—they know yeah. how to run their flight deck. They do, they do, and it's and it's kind of weird that Enterprise kind of—I don't want to say screws the pooch, but they they take their dear sweet time on getting things going. Yet, if you look at February first. It's it's like a conveyor belt. I mean, they're they're, they're landing and launching and landing and launching and all damn day. Yeah. So it's like, what the hell happened in those yeah. you know three odd months? Where, where did the experience
2: go? But well, yeah. I mean, coordinated carrier ops is critical, right? Because one carry two carriers is probably four times as powerful as you know one carrier by itself. Sure. If they can coordinate their operations. Appropriately, right, between searches, scout, combat air patrol, and all those things like that, and it's pretty clear as the battle unfolds that it didn't work out the way it should have
1: yeah, and that and that brings up a real contrast here between the Americans and the Japanese. I mean the Americans don't know what they're doing when it comes to running multiple carriers in a group, whereas the Japanese have just got this down to a, an oil machine science mm-hmm. um, you know the the Japanese put a lot of work immediately pre-war into the mechanics of you know it's one thing to give an order on april 1st 1941 to say create first air fleet you know make this unified (laughs) carrier force but there's a lot of just building blocks i mean okay Mm -hmm. how are these ships going to steam together what compositions are the air groups going to look like when they launch um you know Once they get up in the air, are we going to have four separate formations of aircraft? Are they going to be unified? You know, how are we going to command and control these things? Because the carrier skippers on the Japan side, they were all used to running their own air ops. Mm -hmm. And so during the workup towards Pearl Harbor, people like Genda and Fuchida are having to ram these very unpleasant things down the throats of a lot of these carrier skippers that know there's going to be one guy in the air running all of this stuff and it's going to be, be Fuchida. So by the time that you get to Midway, they've got this whole thing down. Um, yeah. Every Japanese carrier has got two squadrons, you know, one of dive bombers, one of torpedo planes. They operate in division sized packets. So if I'm bringing four carriers uh, to the party, I know that my initial strike is going to be one division is going to contribute its squadrons of torpedo planes. The other is going to be kicking in the dive bombers. We're going to put packets of fighters with each of them. We're going to put them up in the air. They're all going to be in one cohesive strike group. I mean, it's really, really impressive what they can do with their air operations.
0: Well, if you look at Coral Sea alone and you look at the attack on Lexington and and Yorktown, for that matter, it's beautifully coordinated. Yep. Whereas ours at Coral Sea. Scattershot. It was scattershot, and it was – frankly, it was it was a lot of luck, too, that they mm-hmm. arrived at the same – and we'll talk about the almighty luck on June mm-hmm. 4th. But it'd been, but still, it, there's a lot of luck at Coral Sea, and it just kind of happened, whereas it, at Coral Sea for the Japanese, it was perfect – it was like a ballet. It was perfectly executed, mm-hmm. down to the T, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Hey John, one, one thing that's not covered
2: widely is submarines were supposed to play a big role in this I, battle. I,
1: I literally just wanted to talk about that very right. thing because, of course, uh, Nimitz is a submariner, and right. he's, he's placing great stock in what his submarines can do. He's got a dozen mm-hmm. fleet boats that are, you know, scattered in a in an arc off to the. They were
2: going to do both scouting and attrition missions.
1: Absolutely, but there are a number of problems that are kind of working against the American submarines at this point. Uh, a lot of their doctrine says that they should be attacking strictly from underwater using sonar bearings. It's very non-aggressive way of coming to grips. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the patrol sectors of the boats, I would argue that those patrol sectors are over large because the Japanese are going to be coming in in a you know, in a group right. that's going to be basically cleaving a line through your patrol sectors. How do you coordinate those boats to actually bring them in uh, mm-hmm. Onto an approach vector and get them to attack the target. Yep. The Americans we didn't have know the command
2: and control to do that.
1: Bingo! Don't have and it. we don't have the doctors. And
2: the sonars only had a range of detecting these very very noisy ships at about ten thousand yards, five miles. Right. So if they didn't steam within five miles of you, you couldn't. You, you'd never hear them. Yeah. So you needed to see them. Right. And uh, and of course with the height of eye, if you're going to stay at periscope depth, you know, worried about getting counter detected, you've got a visual count, a detection range of maybe 18,000 yards, nine miles. Right.
1: right. So, And we didn't have any of the late war innovations that we came up mm-hmm. with operating in groups of three or four doing, you know, our own version of wolf, wolf pack packs. attacks. Right. None of that stuff exists. Yeah.
2: And if you did detect them, you couldn't close at eight knots submerged. Right. right? And, and they're, they're over the hill. And so yeah. it was almost destined to fail. Yeah. it was and that's if you don't have torpedo problems which right. at this point in the which war I'm not did. sure we knew how bad the torpedo problems were
1: but that all wraps up into a a larger point around you know what did nimitz think he knew and when, when what was the actual reality i mean Again, if we're trying to get into his head and assess the odds, he's got this polyglot air group on midway. Mm-hmm. Does he really think that they're going to deliver a lot of results with, you know, the wind indicators and a bunch of, you know, ginned but up they, B-26s? I don't they may
2: know. be able to detect the the Japanese without giving away that we had carriers because they weren't carrier airplanes.
0: Yeah, mm. you know. But but, technically, they were so. SCDs, F4Fs, Brewsters, and wind indicators are all carrier aircraft. Carrier
1: plane, and the the Japanese note that in in their own combat laws. Yeah, they didn't tell them apart.
0: the uh, The Brewsters were still aboard Lexington post December seventh, nineteen forty one. They still had F2s on, like operating as part of her air group. I forgot the PBys and Army Air Force's airplanes weren't. Oh, for sure, for sure. But 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 still. If they would have seen, when they see these, they are carrier aircraft. I mean, you know, we'll we'll get, we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: (laughs) We're getting ahead of ourselves. The the other huge factor that is very rarely remarked upon, because it ain't glamorous, is you talk about all those PBY Catalinas. Right. That gives us a huge advantage in the scouting department. And everything in Nimitz's battle plan is predicated on, okay, if I do commit the carriers, I want them to hit first before they receive a counter blow and that's all dependent on the quality of scouting that we can get and having a lot of assets up in the air flying around looking for the other guy is a huge advantage in that department so i i don't know how much nimitz necessarily appreciated that but i sort of had this this mental image of him hoping that you know, with 90 plus airplanes and 12 submarines, if I can just knock off one Japanese carrier and maybe damage a second, you know, that ought to be good enough. Even if I only got two of my own flight decks, because, again, I should be able to sink four of them with those two flight decks. So right. I think it well, ends up playing
2: ability. a role. And one submarine ends up playing a significant role, but not in the way intended. Correct. And we'll save that for the next episode. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's it's. <laughs> Arguably one of the one of the turning points of the turning point, it? yeah, such as it is what, um, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to run a little long and, and we could go into the Japanese and American preparations. We've kind of already hit on all of that mm-hmm. uh, to a to a certain degree. Um, we talked about the U.S. plans for the ambush and point luck and we get into all of that just before the battle. Just before the American carriers leave port, I find this to be really cool. It, it, it's really cool. On May 27th, Admiral Nimitz hosts, or he hosts, he hands out awards for Pearl Harbor and for the carrier raids on the flight deck of the Enterprise. And this is where Dory Miller actually gets his Navy cross. Right. There's mm-hmm. a famous photograph of, yes. uh, of Miller standing there, and he's standing next to, um. Geez. Leo Dobson, I believe, it's all pilots from scouting six and fighting six and bombing six and and all and and the like. And uh, he goes up to Roger Mailing who was a fighter pilot in the F six, and he hands him his DFC, and he says. I think in a few days, you might have another chance to win one of these here pretty soon or something along those lines. He's kind of foreshadowing the events mm-hmm. are coming true. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the very next day, May 28th, Enterprise Ways Anchor stands out and pfft, out she goes out with Hornet. And then what on the 30th, John, is it that yeah. Yorktown leaves? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And it it sets it. I mean, if, if you wrote a script yeah. for a movie, which we know that there's, there's been a couple. <laughs> It, it sets it up for this this grand showdown, you know, that the Japanese wanted, that the United States knows is going to happen, or at least, you know, we know we have a pretty good idea what the hell is going to happen, and it 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 just sets the stage for what will be the seminal battle in United States Navy history. On the eve of battle on June third, in your estimation, what are the Japanese thinking? What's going through their heads right now?
1: The Japanese at this point. Um... They do not expect a battle tomorrow morning no. um, and they are being guided by the intel that they are receiving uh, from from various units, you know, and naval communications first unit back in Tokyo. And this is a hinge point for them. Um, we're going to talk in the next episode about, you know, the scouting plans for the Japanese Uh, And a lot of fingers of blame have been pointed at how few assets they use, just seven scout planes. This is all being driven by the intel estimate that they have in hand. If you look at some of the earlier operations, uh, my co-author, Tony Tully, did a lot of work on this looking at Indian Ocean. If they get the right intel estimate, they would have a lot of airplanes up tomorrow morning looking for the enemy if they think that there might be enemy carriers in the neighborhood but they do not expect American carriers to be there and that's going to drive their scouting plan. I think too, just from the standpoint of the experience level within the Japanese forces extremely high, Mm -hmm. and they are very confident that they know what they are doing and that they can come to grips with anything that the Americans might throw against them. Again, from from what they've been told of what happened down in Coral Sea, they sank both Lexington and Yorktown. The Americans at worst should only have two aircraft carriers to oppose them, and we're bringing our four best. If you look at the composition of these air groups, I mean, take a look at Akagi, the flagship. Her torpedo squadron um, is all Pearl Harbor veterans. They Mm -hmm. are led by uh, Lieutenant Commander Murata Shigaharu, who is the gentleman who led the attack against Battleship Roe, who is widely viewed as the best torpedo plane expert in the Navy. Over on Soryu, you've got uh, Commander Agusa, who's the best dive bomber pilot in the Navy. I mean, these guys are really, really good. Um, and they think that, yeah, they have the measure of anything the Americans can throw against them.
0: And I think that's very that's that's probably pretty damn accurate too because I mean you know they have the skins on the wall, yeah. You know, right. They they've they've got a lot of skins on the wall and and yeah. I mean really the only as I said earlier the only combat air group or uh, aircraft carrier air group that we're sending to the battle that has any experience is Enterprise. Enterprise. Yeah. So one of three, you know, against yeah. these four, it really is. Uh, heavily weighed in the Japanese favor. It really is in terms of experience and skill.
1: Experience. Yeah. Although uh, one of the things that Tony and I invade against in our book is the the calculation of the odds uh, by the Americans, you know, the, the two most famous books on Midway, um, Miracle at Midway and Incredible Victory sort of right. paint this picture of, you know, oh, my it's God. It's a miracle. Yeah, it's yeah. a miracle. It took a literal act of God for the Americans to win against the overwhelming odds that they were up against. But if you look at the actual forces that are going to be in contact mm-hmm. tomorrow morning on 4 June, it is the Japanese that have fewer warships and, and fewer airplanes. aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. Then, Those are the
2: tangible and then there's the intangibles that counterweight, right? Sure. And and we
1: can start getting nuanced and taking, again, a look Mm -hmm. at the experience level of of the aviators and the quality of the aircraft. You know, do you want to be in a Brewster versus a Zero? Mm -hmm. I know which plane I want to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, But nevertheless, it was a much more evenly matched contest at the tip of the spear than a lot of the previous American accounts of the battle have given it credit Mm -hmm. for.
2: That's where your book, Shattered Sword, really starts to highlight
0: a lot of um,
1: yeah, the, the certainly what we tried to do
0: the yeah. mythology. Yeah, right. well, it's 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 the Bible. I mean, Shattered Sword is the Midway Bible as of as of today. Maybe on
1: maybe on the Japanese side, although I think there's still a lot of quality stuff on the American side. That if you really want to have a comprehensive view of the battle, you got to read more than just my book. Just mm-hmm. be humble here. So mm-hmm. talk to me about what's going on in the American carriers.
0: Yeah, so so I knew you know from having worked at the World War II Museum for 15 years, I, I knew a lot of Midway aviators. And this is pilots and gunners and you name it. And um, I interviewed over 30, I interviewed 36 of them in my time there. And I, you know, set, you always try to set the stage when you're doing an oral history and you're doing interviews, you're trying to, you know, build the excitement, if you will. And I remember them all, every single one of them saying the exact same types of things, but just with different twists, you know, the guys on the Island, like, Bill Brooks, Bill Brooks was uh, VMF-221. He flew one of those Brewster Buffaloes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he very, very, you know, by the skin of his teeth survived that event. I remember asking him this, you know, what do you think the night before? What, you know, because they knew that something was in the works, you know, as I said earlier, when they saw the you know,
1: Because by the time we get to sundown on the third, let's right. remember that the Japanese invasion force has now and been decided. sighted. Right. Um there's And attacked. Be, and attacked. So yeah, the Je- you know the Japanese are clearly on their way. Anyone yeah. who's on midway understands we are going to be invaded. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So they they knew a fight was on their hands. I asked Bill Brooks, I said, you know, would you think? And he's he's flat out told me, he says, I didn't think I was going to live to see another day. He said, because he knew what he was flying. You talked, you know, the Brewster in the right hands. And, and admittedly, Bill hadn't seen combat to that point, but he knew it was. Not a good airplane. A good, yeah. he, he knew it was not a good airplane. And he had serious doubts as to whether or not he was going to see another sunset. He he really did. He he firmly believed that he was not going to live. And and we can get we'll get into his story uh, in our next episode. And then you got guys like Leon Williamson, who flew one of the wind indicators, you know, in VMSB 241. He was indifferent to the whole thing. You know, he was like, well, this is my job. This is what I got to do. I'm flying a piece of crap, but it is what it is. This is the hand I've been dealt. I'm going to do what I can. Right. So, you know, you, you get this, this total difference of opinion. You know, you got these guys and, and and the same things on the carriers, too. You know, you got your torpedo crews uh, who knew that their airplanes were garbage. And, you know, they knew that if they were going in the battle, that they were likely to not make it back.
1: How much of that, though, is informed by post-battle Recollections. I mean, you know, it's clear after the battle. Holy cow! You, this plane is not up to snuff. But I do sometimes wonder whether or not those accounts were colored by what they learned the following day. What was well, your sense of that?
0: Well, my my sense of that is pretty clear in that I knew Ron Grates. Ron Grates was VT six. Ron Grates flew in the carrier raids in February and March in a TBD, and he knew then. That it was a garbage truck with wings. It, you know, it was slow, it was not maneuverable, it was Fair. just this obsolete beast. And if you look at the plane, it's first of all, it's tremendous. And, and and it's slow and it's just a big slow target. He knew then that it was a beast. Now, granted, admittedly, he did not fly on the fourth of June. He flew on the sixth of June, the last DVD attack of the war. Mm. But He knew going to bed that night, he's on Enterprise again with VT6. He knew going to bed that night that it's like, man, if we go up tomorrow, we're going to be slaughtered. And he was well aware. You know, I think you could say maybe if there were guys who hadn't seen combat before. And again, he had, you know, they might have been informed, as you say, post battle to the TBD's deficiencies.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, But Ron knew full well that it was, you know, a, a piece of crap. To put it bluntly. And and the interesting
2: thing is that the airplane is really less than a decade old, right? And when we flew Hornets for 30 years and things went obsolete way quicker back then. And that's counterintuitive because we think technology is moving faster now, but those airplanes became obsolete very quickly
1: in those days. And it was all driven by developments in engine power, Mm -hmm. right? was yep. all the power plant, pretty much.
0: Yeah, it was just a slow beast, you know, yeah. not maneuverable, just slower than hell. That, and then, you know, you get talking about carrier pilots uh, or carrier air crew. Uh, two of the guys that we'll talk about in the next episode heavily, uh, one of them was a and we've already talked about this gentleman, one was Dusty Cleese, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Cleese, Dusty, as his friends called him. Uh, Dusty was a scouting six SBD pilot. Uh, he was a veteran of, uh, well, of Pearl Harbor. Frankly, he flew into Pearl Harbor later in that afternoon, but uh, you know he flew all the carrier raids. He'd already scored a hit on a Japanese cruiser and one of the carrier raids. He was the opposite of the guys on the island. He was the opposite of Bill Brooks, and that you know I might not see another sunset, and opposite of Leon Williamson, like man, mm, this is just my job. Dusty was supremely confident. Hmm. He he knew and I knew him very, very well. He knew that if he was given the opportunity to see a, a Japanese flight deck, target. he was going to hit it right. and he wasn't going to be one of those guys that was going to take it so low that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to pull up like like Jojo Powers did at, at Coral Sea or think people like that. Yeah. He was going to hit that sucker if he had the opportunity to even lay eyes on one. He was supremely confident in his and his rear seat counter John Snowden's abilities and mm-hmm. and this is a seasoned combat veteran, you know Dusty right. is at this point. And then on the flip, and this is the whole spectrum of American combatants in this in yeah, this and event. That's what I
1: would expect
0: too. So I'm
1: I'm fascinated by that. That yeah, you get opinions that's all across the gamut. And that's confidence
2: it, is good until it's not. And you know at this yeah. point, <laughs> he, yeah. what did he base
0: that confidence on? Dusty, um, yeah, Dusty, yeah. Dusty based his confidence on his abilities and his proven track record already to that mm-hmm. point in the war. Is that he anything he aimed at, he hit
1: it? Yeah, and, 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 got and several thousand hours worth of stick time, too. I oh, mm-hmm. yeah. a a like a guy like Richard Best, same thing, same, same, same thing, a very right? yeah. professional yeah. individual who understood. And, I can hit a target. you oh, Maybe yeah. not as cocky oh, yeah. as
0: the guy in the movie,
1: but yeah. No,
0: he, he no, 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 just, no, yeah. no. Different, but different but they were, Dick Best and, and Dusty Cleese were of the same ilk. You know, they, 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 they were both academy. They were both highly experienced, not just dive armor pilots, but pilots, period. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd both seen a fair amount of combat in the first six months of the war. And they, again, they'd hit what they'd aimed at. So right. they knew if they had the opportunity, both of them know, that they were going to hit what they were aiming at. And then you got, on the flip side of that, you got all these combat vets on Enterprise specifically. And then you got a guy like Don Hoff. Don Hoff's 18 years old. He's a rear seat gunner. He's flying rear seat for James Dexter in Scouting 6. Don had been aboard Enterprise since before Pearl, was supposed to fly into Pearl on in that morning scouting mission. His airplane couldn't go, and the guy that took his place got shot down and killed. Um, but Hoff had never seen combat. Yeah. And I remember him telling me that night, That, he, you know, they knew that they were out there for a reason. They knew that they were going to hit Japanese carriers if they were in the area, if they could find them, the whole thing. He didn't sleep a wink. And he said, you know, the guys who had seen combat, he said, I remember laying there in the bunk, looking around, and half of the guys were asleep, and the other guys were sitting there reading books because they couldn't sleep. And you could tell the new guys from the old guys. guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's just this huge... To use a Louisiana expression, gumbo pot of of manpower, right on the island and the carriers. You know, some with experience, some with none, some resigned to their fate, some supremely confident, and it all just comes to play the following day. So I'm self
2: aware enough to know that I would not have slept, but I would have pretended that I was. I, <laughs> I wonder how many of those guys were like in that category.
0: Uh, so I, I,
1: We pointed out a a flaw on the Japanese battle plan, which is that they're getting bad intel and that's going to drive bad scouting tomorrow morning. I want to point out, you know, as we were sort of looking through our notes here, how we wanted to craft this podcast, we, we talked a little bit about Nimitz's battle plan, Op 2942. And... By and large, it's extremely prescient in how it views the the Japanese coming in and operating, but it too contains a seed of disaster which is going to unfold tomorrow morning, which is that The American view of how the Japanese are going to operate is that they think that Kido Butai is going to be split into two carrier formations, that there will be an advanced formation that's going to get closer to midway and pound it, and that there will be a second formation that will be covering the first. And this, in essence, sort of mirrors how we used our carriers at that point in time, which is in penny packets, you know, onesie-twosie, but never more than two, Uh, And we didn't even like them being in twos at that point in time. And we
2: didn't learn after Pearl Harbor that that's not the way they operate?
1: No. So there's still mirror imaging going on here Mm -hmm. in terms of how we think the the Japanese are going to operate, when in fact they're going to be in one big group of four carriers. Mm -hmm. But that little flaw in Op 2942 is going to come back to bite a certain carrier in the the butt tomorrow as well.
0: Mm -hmm. No doubt. Well, gentlemen, I I have a very strong feeling that we could talk for another four or five hours before we ever even get to to the first launching of an SBD on the the flight decks of the American aircraft carriers. But unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time, (laughs) at least not today. Um, And in closing, before we get to our canned closing statement, I would like to read Chief, uh, Chief, good God. Commander in chief, <laughs> Pacific Fleet Chief Chester W. Nimitz's. Uh, in carrying out the task assigned in Operation Plan 29 42, you will be governed by the principle of calculated risk, which you shall interpret to mean the avoidance of exposure of your force to attack by superior enemy forces without good prospect of inflicting, as a result of such exposure, greater damage to the enemy. This applies to a landing phase as well during preliminary air attacks. And this is exactly what the United States commanders used during this event.
1: Although note that now having moved my carriers to the West Mm -hmm. on the night of 2nd, 3rd June, I have, in essence, committed them to this battle. because He
2: violated his own guidance. Yeah, to to an extent. He's pushed all the chips into the middle of the
0: table.
1: That's exactly what he's done. And he knows now that his carriers are going to be within scouting range of the Japanese when this battle opens. And there's not going to be the ability to say, go, no,
0: go. And dive bomber range. Absolutely. He's already pulled the trigger. Yeah, he's pulled the trigger. So uh, with that, I want to thank you all for listening in on our conversation. Um, Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast and give us a rating and a review. We'd certainly appreciate it. Um, The next episode, I promise you, will bring the climactic battle of the Pacific War. That's it, man. You know it. (laughs) And, John, you're going to be joining us next week. And uh, I want to thank you for being with us today, for sure. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. Looking forward to next week as well. Um, Also, guys, if you want to uh, see the video version of this and any other episode that we've ever done, log on to our YouTube channel appropriately called Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. Uh, Look us up on Facebook. Like and subscribe to our page as well if you have a question or comment or suggestion, only if they're nice. Send us, an e- send, us, send us an email at unauthorizedspecificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so once again, I'm Seth and I want to say thank you very much. John?
1: Thanks a lot. There's a hoot.
0: Bill? Bill yeah, I,
2: I see comments are coming in. I appreciate that, by the way. They want us to talk about China, and that'll be
0: fun. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. Good. Well, uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, thank you all very much, and uh, see you next week.